What the f*** is happening to free speech in America? Welcome to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. In this episode, we discuss free speech, cancel culture, book banning, wokeism, lies, post-truth, the equal time rule, conspiracy theories, and the human need for control and other stuff. Uh, yes, yeah, Steve, we're probably not going to cover all that. No, maybe not. And while we're on the subject, let's say up front that this is all our opinions, everything in here. We're not going to continue to say, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, all of that. It's all our opinion going forward, except for a few quotations. Exactly. Okay. So most people consider the free speech issue a tempest in a teapot. Like only comedians and podcasters care about free speech. Who cares about Joe Rogan and Jordan Peterson whining all the way to the bank? But the issue goes deeper than that. That's what we'd like to explore. All right, let's give it a shot. Okay. Let's start with the concept of free speech. It's largely a myth. Free speech protections do not protect individuals from censorship by a private entity, whether it's from a church, employer, or social media company. This gives companies like Twitter and Facebook the right to create their own rules that can restrict the speech of its users in almost any way it sees fit. Private sector employers can censor their employees. This includes the implementation of social media policies about how employees can discuss their employers online or restricting the kind of political clothing employees wear to work. There are a few exceptions to what private employers can do, but If you dare to criticize the CEO, you will probably be dismissed or transferred to Siberia. Now, in President Trump's case, Twitter and Facebook allowed him to continue using their platforms even if he violated their terms of service. It was only after a violent assault on the United States Capitol that resulted in multiple deaths that they finally took action and banned Trump. That's very controversial, and I could argue either side in Trump's case. The Constitution guarantees free speech. The First Amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. Right. It says Congress shall make no law, but it doesn't prevent you from being censored or sued if you claim on social media that COVID vaccines contain nanobots. Which brings us to cancel culture, or silencing someone that does not have the same belief as you. That's your definition? That's the definition I'm going with for now. (laughs) Okay. Whoopi Goldberg was suspended by ABC from The View for two weeks, for saying the Holocaust is, quote, not related to race. She made the comments during a discussion on TV about a Tennessee school board's banning of Mouse, a graphic novel about the Nazi death camps. ABC News President Kim Godwin said in a statement, quote, Effective immediately, I am suspending Whoopi Goldberg for two weeks, for her wrong and hurtful comments. While Whoopi has apologized, I've asked her to take time to reflect and learn about the impact of her comments. The entire ABC News organization stands in solidarity with our Jewish colleagues, friends, family, and communities. Goldberg said, quote, It's not about race, it's about man's inhumanity to man. That's what it's about. When co-host Anna Navarro said the genocide was, quote, about white supremacy and going after Jews and gypsies and Roma, Goldberg responded that it was two white groups of people. She said, quote, the minute you turn it into race, it goes down this alley. Let's talk about it for what it is. It's how people treat each other. It's a problem. It doesn't matter if you're black or white because black, white, Jews, everybody. 
They took her off the air for that. They gave her a timeout, like she's 12 years old. It's a talk show. She's expressing an opinion. She's not advocating violence. She's not advocating Nazism. Would you have suspended her? No way. If anything, I'd suspend Godwin. Give her a timeout to reflect on what she's doing to free speech in America. Well, freedom of speech is considered a civil right, along with freedom of religion, freedom of the press, freedom to vote, etc. But it's a myth? Well, like any right, it has to be fought for and defended. It's not automatic. I'm kind of old school. <laughs> you think? And, and proud of it. Die, boomer. Soon enough. Soon enough. Anyway, when we talk about cancel culture, I go back to Don Imus in the early 2000s. Do you remember him? I think vaguely. Yeah. Well, in 2007, before cancel culture became a thing, Imus made the headlines. CBS Radio and MSNBC TV fired Don Imus because he had used a, quote, racially damaging phrase. This wasn't a timeout. CBS permanently canceled his show, Imus in the Morning. It was characterized as abrupt. But the move took two weeks after advertisers pulled out. Keep that in mind. It had to do with the sponsors and guests who canceled. What did he say? Well, Imus called the 2007 Rutgers University women's basketball team, quote, rough girls, and, quote, some nappy-headed hoes. Well, that is pretty racist. And misogynistic. But he wasn't advocating violence against the women. He was trying to be funny, and he blew it. He apologized for what he called a, quote, insensitive and ill-conceived remark, but only after a massive backlash. He compared the New Jersey team to the Tennessee team they were playing, saying, the girls from Tennessee, they all looked cute. The conversation then went on to compare the game to, quote, the Jigaboos versus the Wannabes, a comment made by the show's executive producer, not, not Imus, but Bernard McGurk, who was quoting from the Spike Lee movie, School Days. The Jigaboo quote was removed from subsequent news reports. By the way, Bernard McGurk is still on WABC radio in New York, earning $500,000 per year. Imus' show had been broadcast almost every weekday morning for 36 years on radio and 11 years on MSNBC TV until it was canceled in April 2007. Imus was off the air for eight months. His program was picked up by WABC Talk Radio, conservative talk radio in New York, and syndicated by Cumulus Media starting in December 2007. The show aired its final episode in March 2018. Imus died in December 2019 at age 79. Among his many awards were numerous Peabody Awards, NAB Broadcasting Hall of Fame, four NAB Marconi Radio Awards. He was named one of the 25 most influential people in America in Time Magazine, April 21, 1997. Imus claimed at the time that he was using language he had heard in rap music. Snoop Dogg and some of his peers have called women, uh, let me put it this way, the B word, and hose in their lyrics. But as the dog put it, there is no parallel to what Imus said. In November of that same year, 2007, presidential candidate Barack Obama invited rapper Ludacris to his Chicago office to talk about, as the Associated Press reported it, quote, lighting the way for the nation's youth. They discussed, quote, Empowering the youth, said Ludacris, whose hits include I Got Hose and Use a Hoe and Just Plain Ho. That doesn't excuse what Imus said. Not at all. But we're talking about free speech, comedy, and cancel culture. I think what Imus did and what he later acknowledged 
was a classic example of, quote, punching down. In a 1990 Larry King interview, comedian George Carlin criticized then-young comic Andrew Dice Clay for punching down. George Carlin famously said, comedy has traditionally targeted people who abuse their power. Women and gays and immigrants are underdogs. Carlin did not make jokes at the expense of what he considered underdogs. Do you think Imus should have been canceled? Well, here's what I think. According to Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy in 2012, he said, The remedy for speech that is false is speech that is true. This is the ordinary course in a free society. The response to the unreasoned is the rational, to the uninformed, the enlightened, to the straight-out lie, the simple truth, close quote. This is called the counter-speech doctrine, first established by Justice Louis D. Brandeis in 1927. It's often cited as an antidote to cancellation and censorship. Al Sharpton at the time went on and on in outrage, demanding I must be fired, but said nothing about Spike Lee, Snoop Dogg, Ludacris, and all the rappers and African-American comics who routinely use the N-word. It's the height of hypocrisy, not to mention Al Sharpton's outrageous lies in the Tawana Brawley case, but that's a different story. Yeah, but Steve, Imus was not a rapper. (laughs) That's what my wife said. But he was a comedian, a comedian who violated the norms of taste for corporate media. He was guilty of really bad taste. And free speech went out the window. What did canceling him get except an opportunity for certain people to appear righteous? And it pushed him into the arms of Fox News. He became more conservative in his later years. So today we have Dave Chappelle being criticized for making jokes about trans people. He's punching down. Exactly. George Carlin had it right. I doubt if Carlin would side with millionaire TV star Dave Chappelle making fun of an oppressed minority who are the victims of violence and discrimination. What about Ricky Gervais mocking Caitlyn Jenner? Well, if we're using the Carlin rule, Jenner is a millionaire public figure who transitioned to becoming a woman as part of a reality TV show. She made money off it. I think she was fair game. But the jokes were in questionable taste. Taste is in the ears of the beholder and in the (laughs) tyranny of wokeism. Yeah, well, wokeism has certainly overstepped itself at times. At times. So, okay, let's talk about wokeism. Here's my question. How do you combat implicit bias? If you accept the validity of the implicit association test, which not everyone does, but certainly Malcolm Gladwell and our guest Henry Richards do, if you accept the empirical research done, by the IAT researchers, you understand that 80% of Americans, including 50% of African Americans, implicitly favor white faces to black faces and indicate some form of implicit racial bias. If you accept that premise, which I do, then our society has unconscious bias that causes people harm in unemployment, housing, education opportunities, etc. The same can be said about bias against women, LGBTQIA people, Native Americans, Latinx, and others. We're talking about bias that is not conscious, not intended, but nonetheless real. Bias that many conservatives deny exists. Many conservatives deny the unconscious mind exists. I know. So, What can be done about it? I don't know. Neither do I. But the woke movement is trying to do something. The call-out culture attempts to call out bias when it appears. Maybe canceling someone is going too far, maybe not, but it's an attempt. It's not pretending that everything is okay. 
Right, because it's not. But what is, quote, offensive? What's offensive to one person is comedy to someone else. Well, to me, if you use a racial slur, knowing it is insulting, knowing that it's rude, derogatory, disrespectful, hurtful, well, then you should be criticized. The problem is, if you use a term that a member of a minority uses to describe himself, how do you know it's offensive to him? How do you know it's offensive to him if you use it the same way he or she uses it? And terms change connotation. How do you know when it becomes not okay? For example, colored people, Negro, Black, Afro, African American, Indian, queer, they all changed connotations in my lifetime, some more than once. Yeah, the NAACP is the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. The UNCF is the United Negro College Fund. You can't say colored people or Negro on TV today. I'm afraid to say anything. I'm expecting to be attacked on social media after this podcast. Oh, yeah, you're doomed. (laughs) (laughs) But, but, But that's more like an annoyance than a problem. It's hard to keep up with the term du jour. Unless you're getting death threats. Well, social media has changed the rules. Well, the very fact that this podcast is being listened to in five countries tells you something has changed. It certainly has. Our little podcast is being listened to in Australia. But look, what we mostly hear about are people like Ann Coulter, Jordan Peterson, Laura Ingram, Joe Rogan, Sam Harris complaining, whining about cancel culture. I heard this interview with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in a recent New Yorker interview, and she was asked this by David Remnick. Quote, one of the cudgels used by the right these days, and not only the right, is fear about cancellation and wokeness. We've even heard members of the House give speeches about the dangers of so-called cancel culture. And at the same time, it does seem like norms around speech are changing around fears of online backlashes. He said, I know you've criticized that term, cancel culture, even dismissed it, but you did so in a tweet. AOC responded, quote, you talk about cancel culture, but notice that those discussions only go one way. We don't talk about all the people who were fired. You just kind of talk about, like, right-leaning podcast bros and more conservative figures. But, for example, Mark Lamont Hill was fired from CNN for discussing an issue with respect to Palestinians pretty summarily. There was no discussion about it, no engagement, no thoughtful discourse over it. Just pure accusation. Well, AOC likes to keep it real. Yeah, she looks at cancel culture from a political perspective. In that same interview, she said, quote, You look at the capture of power in the right wing, the ascent of white nationalism, the concentration of wealth. You cannot really animate or concentrate a movement like that. You can't coalesce it into functional political power without a sense of persecution or victimhood. And that's the role of this concept of cancel culture. It's the speck of dust around which the raindrop must form in order to precipitate takeovers of school boards, pushing actual discourse out of the acceptable norms. Like in terms of the 1619 Project, or getting books banned from schools, you need the concept of cancel culture, of persecution, in order to justify, animate, and pursue a political program of takeover, or at least a constant further concentration of their own power. Okay, she brought up book banning. That's got to be the most frightening assault on free speech. Oh, I'd like to say it's un-American, but it's really not. All right, here's a partial list of books banned recently by local school boards and others. Black Girl Unlimited by Echo Brown. They called themselves the KKK, the birth of an American terrorist group by Susan Campbell Bertoletti. 
Separate is never equal. Sylvia Mendez and her family's fight for desegregation by Duncan Tanatiu. Gender Queer by Maya Kobabi. Two Boys Kissing by David Leviathan. The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. Fences by August Wilson. Beloved by Toni Morrison. Between the World and Me by Ta Naeshi Coates. The Confessions of Nat Turner by William Styron. The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian by Sherman Alexie. Cast by Isabel Wilkerson. There are winners of the Pulitzer Prize, National Book Awards, and American Library Association's Awards, and many others. AOC would say it's politics. Someone else might say it's about religion. Or thinly disguised bigotry. It sure sounds like it. But over the years, and sometime on the other side of the spectrum, are the banning of The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn by Mark Twain, To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, 1984 by George Orwell, The Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger, The Color Purple by Alice Walker, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by Maya Angelou, Lord of the Flies by William Golding. Yeah, well, Mark Twain said, Censorship is telling a man he can't have a steak just because a baby can't chew it. (laughs) I love it. How can we talk about free speech and book banning in the same sentence? Well, is this an example of what George Packer calls tribal irrationality? Is it all about whose tribe you belong to? Well, Kim Godwin won't let you talk about the Holocaust, and a Tennessee school board won't let you read about LGBTQIA or racial bigotry. This is part of what some people call the culture war. It includes issues like abortion, race, gender, gay and transgender rights, religion in public schools, mask wearing, vaccination, family values, parents' rights, laws limiting teaching about racism and restricting classroom content, suppressing the social and political influence of historically marginalized groups. Controlling what gets to be said and where and when you can say it. Free speech is a battle line in the culture war. Now, let's talk about lies. Wow, okay. Well, let's start with half-truths. Okay. The Republican National Committee on February 4th, 2022, issued this. Resolution to formally censure Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger and to no longer support them as members of the Republican Party. Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are participating in a Democrat-led persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse and they are both utilizing their past professed political affiliation to mask Democrat abuse of prosecutorial power for partisan purposes. And the violent insurrection of January 6, 2021, is called legitimate political discourse? Well, that's a half-truth. I'm sure some of the folks there were engaged in legitimate political discourse. Uh, including the ones who killed police officers and sent other people to the hospital? Well, I think they left that part out. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Well, the part being investigated by the House of Representatives Select Committee. But there's no law against what the RNC is saying or doing. Nope. Maybe someone will sue them. The way the families of the murdered children and adults at Sandy Hook Elementary School recently won a lawsuit against Remington. Remington had to pay for their irresponsible marketing of the rifle used in the massacre in Newtown, Connecticut in 2012. And they're sued against InfoWars host Alex Jones. That's right. What the courts are saying, as I understand it, is you can say whatever you want, but if you cause death and if you defame people, you can be successfully sued. By the way, this, this, this continues to bug me. The RNC resolution mentions the Democrat Party. I think words matter, and it should be noted that there is no Democrat Party 
According to Wikipedia and others, quote, the term Democrat Party is an epithet, that's, that's a carefully chosen word, for the Democratic Party of the United States used disparagingly by the party's opponents. I think it should also be noted that the Democratic Party, not Democrat Party, was founded in 1828, making it the world's oldest active political party. Why the Republican Party is called the, quote, Grand Old Party, GOP, is anyone's guess. Maybe it should be called the SOP, Second Oldest Party. But I digress. Stop digressing. (laughs) I can't help it. I'm old. Well, you got that right. Well, if we're going to talk about lies, which we are, we can't get away from The Big Lie by Donald Trump and Friends. The Big Lie is a term originally coined by Adolf Hitler to describe the use of a lie so colossal that no one would believe that someone, quote, could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. President-elect Joe Biden used the term to describe Trump's and his allies' repeated and false claim that there had been massive election fraud and that Trump was the true winner of the election. Dr. Romani Dervasiva, a licensed clinical psychologist and professor of psychology, says that repetition is important because the big lie works through indoctrination. The big lie then becomes its own evidence base. If it is repeated enough, people believe it, and the very repetition almost tautologically becomes the support for the lie. Hear something enough, it becomes truth. People assume there's an evidence base when the lie is big. It's like a blind spot. I also think Trump's lies are believed by his tribe of supporters because they love Trump. High-level Republicans repeat the lies to manipulate voters for their own political ends. Yeah, a number of lawsuits against Trump and others maintain that the big lie encouraged the 2021 attack on the U.S. Capitol. Civil court may be the best way to deal with lies like this. Well, according to the Washington Post fact-checker analysis, Donald Trump made 30,573 false or misleading claims during his four years in office, none of which is illegal. Lying is not against the law. In an episode of the Making Sense podcast called The Future of American Democracy, Ann Applebaum said, quote, If you tell hundreds of lies, if you tell them over and over again, different lies from different directions every day, what you create is cynicism and nihilism and confusion and the belief that no truth can ever be known. Yes, but I think the reverse is also at work. I think if you live in a culture of cynicism and nihilism and confusion and belief that no truth can ever be known, then you won't mind the president telling 30,000 lies. I think the lies help weaken the culture, but they're not the cause. Like, if I tell 30,000 lies, I'd expect people to stop listening to me, not that the society will come unhinged. But the lying by the president contributes to the problem. Right, but it's not the cause. What's the cause? Well, in a word, relativism. But that's part of a complex answer to a complex question, one that you and I will explore next month. Something to look forward to. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. And in the meantime, I need more coffee. Why don't we take a break? Good idea. Folks, we've been discussing free speech, cancel culture, wokeism, book banning, the culture war, and lies. We're going to be talking about equal time and conspiracy theories. And more. Don't go away. We'll be right back. We've been discussing free speech and a lot of related issues. What's next? Equal time and conspiracy theories. Okay. Well, being old helps you remember when things were different. Not necessarily better, but very unlike what we have today. The equal time rule is an example. 
Now, the equal time rule specifies that American radio and television broadcast stations must provide an equivalent opportunity to any opposing political candidates who request it. The equal time rule stated that if a station sells time to one candidate for office, it must be willing to sell equal time to opposing candidates. The federal equal time rule required broadcasters to treat a candidate for the same political office identically to every other candidate for that office. If a person was attacked on a broadcast, that person had the right to reply over the same station. The Fairness Doctrine of the United States Federal Communication Commission, the FCC, introduced in 1949, was a policy that required the holders of broadcast licenses both to present controversial issues of public importance and to do so in a manner that fairly reflected differing viewpoints. The doctrine did not require equal time for opposing views, but required that contrasting viewpoints be presented. The Fairness Doctrine was challenged in 1985. The FCC released a report stating that the doctrine hurt the public interest and violated free speech rights of broadcasters guaranteed by the First Amendment. They repealed it in 1987. Ronald Reagan's administration. Which made modern talk radio possible. According to Wikipedia, the United States saw dramatic growth in the popularity of talk radio during the 1990s due to the repeal in 1987 of the Federal Communication Commission's post-war Fairness Doctrine of 1949. The political conservative commentator Rush Limbaugh demonstrated that there was a nationwide market for a passionately delivered conservative polemic on contemporary news, events, and social trends that changed the face of how the talk radio business was conducted. Unrestrained by the Fairness Doctrine, cheering for one's political party, and especially against the other party, had become popular entertainment which rapidly changed the way politics nationally was discussed perceived, and conducted. And Fox News emerged in 1996. And let's not only pick on the conservatives. MSNBC-TV has been accused by academics, media figures, political figures, and watchdog groups of having various biases in their news coverage as well as more general views of a liberal bias. Fox in sheep's clothing. Ha ha ha. <laughs> What would America be like today without talk radio, Fox News, and MSNBC? We'll never know. I think what we should be talking about now is the notion that we are in a post-truth era. Right. And here's a definition. Post-truth is a time period or an environment in which facts are viewed as irrelevant or less important than the personal beliefs and opinions and emotional appeals that are used to influence public opinion, often focusing on politics. I know it's all a lot to take in. So, examples of post-truth politics include false rumors, such as the birther or Muslim conspiracy theories about Barack Obama that became major news topics. Millions of supporters believed Donald Trump's claim that during his inauguration, the weather cleared when actually light rain fell throughout his address. Think about what terms have entered our culture in the last few years. Fake news, alternative facts, political spin. Actual facts are replaced by feelings that have more weight than evidence. Is it wishful thinking, mass delusion, or bold-faced lying. Well, here's one explanation for the political side by Lee McIntyre. He says, I define post-truth as the political subordination of reality. So I think of post-truth as a tactic that's used by authoritarians and their wannabes to control the flow of information so that they can then control the populace. It's intended not just to corrupt our belief in some specific thing that's true, 
but really to undermine the idea that we can know truth outside of political context. So it's something that mostly just bad guys are doing? Well, I would say dishonest actors are involved for political reasons, but are capitalizing, not causing it. Take white discrimination, for example. White discrimination. Some people call it white grievance. According to a poll released by NPR, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, 55% of white Americans say discrimination against them exists in America today. People surveyed claimed that black people get the first crack at jobs and government assistance. Donald Trump catered to white grievance during the 2016 presidential campaign and has done so as president as well. Only a small percentage say that they have actually experienced discrimination, and 84% of whites believe discrimination exists against racial and ethnic minorities in America today. Lower and moderate income white Americans were more likely to say that whites are discriminated against and to say they have felt it either when applying for a job, raise, or promotion, or in the college admissions process. It's a partisan issue, one that a certain demagogue has been exploiting. Remember what AOC said about a sense of persecution or victimhood. It's a source of political power. But it's not the cause. Well, the idea of anti-white bias implies that the entire social system is unstable. While whites currently comprise the majority of the U.S. population, census projections indicate that within the next several decades, whites will become a numerical minority. If whites are aware of this trend, they're more likely to fear being discriminated against. If they're reminded that they're losing their social power position, they experience unconscious fear and cling to a traditional social order in which whites have more status power and wealth and racial minorities. Steve, you know what that sounds like? Yep. Terror management theory. Yep. And add to this mix the economic struggle working Americans have experienced for the last 40 years, and you have a population wrestling with anxiety caused by unconscious death thought accessibility. So, post-truth is an era It's a period in which emotion outweighs reason. That shouldn't be a surprise. Democracy is a form of government that runs on the emotions and tribal loyalties of the majority of its citizens. Voters often make knee-jerk election choices to the exclusion of issues in their own interest or to persecute scapegoats. Malcolm Gladwell says civil society simply cannot function without default to truth. Our fundamental reaction to any kind of new information is to believe it. Our default position is to believe each other. Without that, we don't have a society. Default to truth leaves us open to deception and fraud, but it underpins business transactions and all interpersonal relationships. A post-truth environment and politics, post-truth politics, threatens the foundation of our world. And we're going to talk about this more next month. One more thing. Conspiracy theories. Yeah, this part is crazy. We've touched on some of them, like birtherism. Well, here's a definition. A conspiracy theory is an explanation for an event or situation that invokes a conspiracy by a sinister and powerful group often political in motivation when other explanations are more probable. Here are some more recent examples. Hydroxychloroquine could, quote, cure COVID-19. COVID-19 hoaxes like inflated numbers of cases and deaths. QAnon, Democrats accused of being cannibal pedophiles. Baseless claims of voter fraud. It's even in music nowadays. Hot Pod and The Guardian reported that Spotify playlists pushed listeners to anti-vaccine music after they had already listened to similar content. 
the songs, quote, encouraged people not to get vaccinated and say those who do are slaves, sheep, and victims of Satan. Others call for an uprising, urging listeners to fight for your life. Ah, the beauty of AI and algorithms. Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, you name it, use algorithms to push visitors to more and more radical notions, whether left or right. Remember, it's both sides of the political divide. Left-wingers believe that anyone but Oswald killed Kennedy, that George Bush blew up the World Trade Center on 9-11, and that vaccines cause autism. Whatever conspiracy theory people believe in provides a framework for understanding the world and bringing order to random events. This takes us back to tribalism. Information, truth, is based on whether your community or tribe advocates for it. At the same time, studies have shown that socio-political turbulence tends to generate conspiracies. The modern misinformation crisis allows conspiracy theories to flourish. Trump has a long history of promoting conspiracy theories dating from well before his time in politics. I think believing and sharing conspiracy theories makes you a member of a club. You and your pals know the truth with a capital T. It gives you a role to play in this cosmic drama we find ourselves in. And it's a source of self-esteem, isn't it? So, therefore, a small defense against death anxiety. Yeah, belief in conspiracy theories provides believers with a community of similarly disaffected thinkers who can validate one another's anxieties and shared worldview. As our friend Merlin Mowry would say, you get a yes vote, an immortality project. Taken to its logical conclusion, if you're outraged that Hillary Clinton is running a child's sex ring out of a pizzeria's basement, you would be a hero to go there with your gun to stop their nefarious scheme, wouldn't you? CNN reported in 2017 that Edgar Madison Welsh, 29, was sentenced to four years in prison for firing three shots with an AR-15 rifle inside the Comet Ping Pong restaurant in Washington, D.C. He claimed he was attempting to find and rescue child sex slaves that he had read on social media were being held at the restaurant. He was doing God's work. As are the anti-abortionists who bomb abortion clinics, the January 6th insurrectionists who stormed the Capitol, and Kyle Rittenhouse who killed two Black Lives Matter protesters in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Like Timothy McVeigh, who killed 168 people when he blew up the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City in 1995. As Ernest Becker would say, doing evil to destroy evil. And let's not forget that killing, especially righteous killing, is a powerful defense against death anxiety. The logical result of conspiracy theories gone wild. In this environment, Vox reporter David Roberts argues the primary institutions of society, government, academia, science, and the media, which used to be seen as impartial authorities, can be rejected if they contradict your tribe's worldview. A partisan refusal to compromise was once a sign of extremism, but now it's almost expected, at least in certain tribes. Truth is whatever the tribal rhetoric says it is. What does that sound like? Sounds like postmodernism. More on that another day. How did we get here? Well, we mentioned control a few times. In my opinion, it comes down to power and control. Let me read you this passage. Psychologist Eric Fromm was an influence on Ernest Becker. In Escape from Freedom, Fromm discussed people's attempt to overcome their unbearable feelings of powerlessness. He wrote that if they attempt to become a part of something bigger and more powerful outside of themselves, quote, to submerge and participate in it, he wrote, this power can be a person, an institution, God, the nation, conscience, or a psychic compulsion. By becoming part of a power which is felt as 
unshakably strong, eternal, and glamorous. One participates in its strength and pride connected with it. One loses one's integrity as an individual and surrenders freedom. But one gains a new security and a new pride in the participation in the power in which one submerges. One gains also security against the torture of doubt, whether his master is an authority outside of himself or whether he has internalized the master as conscience or a psychic compulsion. One is saved from making decisions, saved from the final responsibility for the fate of his self, and thereby saved from the doubt of what decisions to make. He is also saved from the doubt of what the meaning of his life is or who he is. These questions are answered by the relationship to the power to which he has attached himself. The meaning of his life and the identity of his self are determined by the greater whole into which the self has submerged. So human investment in government authority, scientific and technological power, institutional attempts at control of the world, the environment, and other people are all forms of transference. In each case, the individual is part of or cooperates with the making of a powerful entity and then aligns with it to share power and control. The attempt is mostly unconscious and symbolic, conferring a share to the individual in symbolic power and symbolic immortality. Control is a major immortality project. Death is ultimately not controllable, but control is what humans most ardently seek. In humans' vain efforts to control the uncontrollable, we unconsciously shift our energy to control of the world outside of ourselves. Similarly, humans strive to control the thoughts and lives of others. Human interaction is then filled with contention as humans attempt to control one another's beliefs, loyalties, and symbols. Is there any way to end this with some hope? Let's try. Here's AOC from the New Yorker interview. We have a culture of immediate gratification where if you do something and it doesn't pay off right away, we think it's pointless. But if more people start to truly cherish and value the engagement and the work in their own backyard, it will precipitate much larger change. There is no movement, there is no effort, there is no unionizing, there is no fight for the vote, there is no resistance to draconian abortion laws. Even if people think that the future is baked in and nothing is possible and that we're doomed, even on climate, or especially on climate, you want to write something, and it's in your head, it's this big, beautiful, Nobel Prize-winning concept, and then you're humbled by the words that you actually put on paper. That is the work of theory, of concepts, you know, and that is what it means to be in the arena. I reject this total cynicism that what's happening here is fruitless. You know, just a person that age, being that smart, that committed, and that humble, fills me with hope. I know, me too. If some of our analysis is correct, and that much of our current social and political divisions are the result of inadequate defense against death anxiety, then I think we've explored some solutions in the past that we could apply to this subject today. We're going to play for you a brief exchange between Sheldon Solomon and Merlin Mowry. The subject is humility and gratitude. For most of us, we have a lot to be grateful for. And some of the research that I'm involved with right now and that some of the other folks that I intersect with have been, I think, very important studies that just show that when people think of themselves in a humble fashion or when they think about things that they have to be grateful for, it reduces death anxiety. It makes them more generous and less hostile and aggressive to people that are different. It's just a fact 
that each of us could stand to be humble in light of the reality of where we sit in the world around us. And it's also a fact that for those of us that aren't starving or getting bombed every day, we have a lot to be grateful for. And then there's the fact that all of the world's great religious traditions and even the philosophical traditions of a secular nature, we all agree about that. Humility, good. Gratitude, good. Let's have them high on the list of things that we cherish and value. You know, what I like about what you're saying about humility and gratitude is certainly some people have lives for which there's very little to be grateful, but most of us, even in pretty humble circumstances in our relationships, have opportunities for things that we are grateful for. So, So humility definitely is telling the truth about empirical reality because we are very small, temporary creatures in a very vast, complex reality. So the humility is telling the truth. Gratitude, we hope, is telling the truth. I think it's also truth-telling that death is a terrible ordeal. It is a tragedy. I think if we're going to tell the truth about death, it will include things like humility and gratitude. Even the tragic perspective is an acknowledgement of the preciousness of life and perhaps the gratitude for life that you are losing. And at a certain point, our turn is up. Our turn is up. When we can confront death with others, with humility, and we can hear their gratitude or or our own. You don't have to like it. I mean, if we can manage it enough to be honest, I think that would be an enormous step forward. Oh, I like that. And even to frame it as a a humble heroic, because it is. A humble heroic. That does carry a modicum of hope. Important ideas, Steve. I agree. Join us next time. Like us on Facebook. Please recommend us to your friends. You can find us at www.thehubforimportantideas.com. And support us on Patreon at www.patreon.com front slash thehubimportantideas. We are 100% listener supported. And please check out our documentary video series, Conversations with Solomon, exploring human motivation, now on YouTube. Thank you, everyone, for listening to The Hub for Important Ideas. I'm Steve James. And I'm Ken Swain. Stay safe, everybody. Stay well. This has been a Contemporary Heroism Initiative production.